is the errors that get deep down in your code base that are the toughest to wash out. How? Use new fashion smashing with exclusive learning action. Bugs just float away with smashing. So help your family's code stay spotless with easy to use smashing. In this episode of the Smashing Podcast, we're asking what it looks like to dog food the jam stack at Netlify. Can you deploy an entire app to a CDN? We talked to engineer Leslie Conewine to find out. But first, did you know that Smashing Magazine publishes a brand new article to the website five days a week? That's a lot to keep up with, but we're here to help. It's your weekly update. In a dive into React and 3JS using React 3 Fiber, Fortune Ikechi introduces React 3 Fiber, a powerful 3JS renderer that helps render 3D models and animations for React and React native applications. In this tutorial, you'll learn how to configure and build 3D models and learn the basics of 3JS alongside its components and the benefits that React 3 Fiber brings to your project. Suzanne Skacker writes about best practices for e-commerce and UI design this week, reminding us that the goal of e-commerce design is to create interfaces that won't get in the way of the overall shopping experience. In this post, Suzanne looks at three key parts of the digital store and what you can do to design each to help customers more quickly and effortlessly get to the checkout stage. In Authenticating React Apps with Auth0, Leaf Amadamaro Atori identifies an important aspect of app development is ensuring that only verified users have access to our apps. This can be tedious and costly to do, especially when you add alternative methods of logging in. In this article, Neath shows how to authenticate React apps using Auth0, as well as how to set up those all-important social logins. Digital inclusion expert Robin Christofferson conducts a roundtable with senior accessibility guests in From the Experts, Global Digital Accessibility Developments During COVID-19. What challenges and opportunities does the crisis bring? They discuss agile adjustments, digital inclusion, and much, much more. If you want food for thought from global experts in inclusion, this is the article for you. And in What's New in View 3?, Timmy Omieni takes a look at some of the interesting new features and changes in Vue 3 that are aimed at making development with the framework a lot easier and maintainable. As well as looking at some of these new features and how to get started with them, he also looks at some of the changes to existing features. And that is your weekly update. Find all these and more at smashingmagazine.com slash articles. She's an award-winning front-end specialist, originally from Austin, but now living in Dallas, Texas, via a stint in New York City. During her time working for agencies, she built sites for clients such as Nintendo, World Pride, and Jerry Seinfeld. She's now a staff front-end engineer at Netlify, where, amongst other things, she works at building out the application customers use to manage their service and deployment. So we know she's an accomplished front-end engineer. But did you know, when living in New York City, she served as an assistant chili cook-off judge three years in a row? And that one's actually true. My smashing friends, please welcome Leslie Conewine. Hi, Leslie. How are you? I'm smashing. I wanted to talk to you today about how Netlify sort of 
eats its own dog food, to use that charming expression, when it comes to building on the Jamstack. Um, I should put this in context a little bit by saying that up until a few months ago, we worked together on the same team at Netlify. And when I got there, the development process was actually really foreign to me, even after 20 years as a, a, a developer. I thought it was just really fascinating and well worth exploring a bit with a, a wider audience. Um, I should probably point out that, you know, we're talking about this because it makes a genuinely interesting case study and it's not a, a sponsored big ad for Netlify. Uh, everyone should check out Vercel. Um, but I think there's a lot of valuable things that can be learned uh, from discussing it, particularly from a Jamstack point of view, because and Netlify is uh, a really big proponent of the Jamstack approach and the service is sort of offered to the customer and is built around that idea of, of building Jamstack projects. But the service is also built using those principles itself, isn't it? It is, yeah. A lot of people sort of think of that Jamstack architecture, right, as static sites, um, but we're really dogfooding what it means to build a Jamstack app, right, with the Netlify front end because it's a React app that is a full Jamstack app that we deploy Netlify on Netlify. So uh, yeah, we're really um, trying it out and, and pushing the limits of what's possible. I think there's sometimes this idea that Jamstack is is great for just static sites, as you say, and like the API aspect comes in if you want to send a form to an email address and you can just do something easy like that, but you can possibly build a whole web app uh, that way. But you, you, know, you are doing that, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, our, our app, um, talking specifically about what you see if you log in at app.netlify.com is powered by, we've got an internal REST API, um, but the front end, like I said, is is pure Jamstack. So we have our own build step. Uh, we watch the app as it builds in the app uh, and we deploy on on our own system. So when there are a backend process involved and there's always going to be some sort of level of, of backend processes, you know, persisting data or in Netlify's case, it's starting off a, a deployment or what have you, um, that backend just kind of gets built as a series of APIs that can then be consumed by the front end? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of different models of how you can make this work. Um, in most cases in our app, we use client-side fetching uh, with React, right? So we serve sort of a static shell of the app, and then we fetch the user's information from our internal REST API at the request time. Um, but it's Jamstack is interesting because there's some things you can pre-build, right? Um, and we try and rely on that uh, when we can. Uh, and then when we're talking about some of the more dynamic data, we'll use that client-side fetching uh, in order to make sure that we're we're pulling in the, the freshest data. I think it, it surprised me um, when I started working on the app just how much is being achieved in the front end, um, particularly when it comes to like interacting with external APIs and things. Um, I know that like when Netlify interacts with your Git provider, so it goes to to GitHub and gets a list of a list of repos. Um, that that's all happening between your browser and and GitHub, and uh, apart from maybe the you know going through a, a, a serverless function that's putting some secrets on the request or something lightweight like that, um, most of that is just happening in a jam stacky sort of way. It's not going through uh, Netlify's sort of core backend infrastructure. Um, so it, you know that, that that's quite fascinating. That really is going so much further beyond just a static site with. Uh, you know, a few API calls to to do, you know, little things. That's that's real core functionality, isn't it, that's being implemented in the browser? Absolutely. It really pushes, I think, that um, concept of what a front-end developer engineer is, right? Um, and it's it's something that pushes me as a front-end engineer to to be better and to think more about those sort of, sorts of 
uh, the API layer, which is not something that I've traditionally have been as as close to. I you know work more in UI and uh, colors and design systems, and so it really um, I actually have found that working on a Jamstack app at scale has pushed me to be a better developer. Being a front end developer isn't knowing CSS <laughs> back to front, although that's part of it. Uh, is not knowing HTML back to front, although that's part of it. It's also straying into this territory that was traditionally uh, the the preserve of, of a back-end engineer, which is uh, quite interesting. Do, does Netlify use any server-side rendering for... Not that I'm aware of. So it's all just literally done, as you say, you serve a, a shell, uh, and then it gets populated with requests back to different API endpoints to to sort of populate it all. Exactly. And you say, you say it's a React app? Yes. Yes, React. We use React Redux right now. And... Um, Right now we're post-CSS, but we're uh, experimenting with our CSS architecture as well. Aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> um, so you you build this, uh, you build the app in React, um, and then you deploy it on Netlify. Yes. Uh, maybe my favorite point, part of that whole process uh, is the magic of deploy previews, which we get through Netlify. So what happens is you'll, you know, you're we're working in GitHub, you push up your PR. Um, so you open up your, your PR on GitHub, and that is going to automatically create a build of your deploy preview of the app. Uh, so we actually use uh, deploy previews of the app itself um, to test out to make sure everything is working the way it should. We run our tests. Um, you know, that's what we use sort of to, to manually verify uh, during code review. Um, so we have sort of all of that continuous deployment set up right from GitHub. Uh, and then uh, one of the other cool things that we, we have set up is that we actually have a couple of different Netlify sites that are pulling from the same repository where our app lives. So uh, we have both our app. We've got an instance of Storybook that has sort of our uh, UI components for the app. Um, So we have both our app itself. We've got the Storybook uh, UI components, and we have basically a Netlify site that shows our Storybook UI. Um, And then we also have a third site that runs a Webpack Bundle Analyzer. So it's sort of a visual UI it gives you a tree map visualization of all of the app's bundles, and we can sort of gauge their size. And it's sort of just a reminder for us uh, to double check sort of as uh, every deploy of the app goes out, we can sort of check and make sure we're not um, doing anything weird with our, our bundle size there. So um, all three of those sites get generated uh, in one pull request of the app. Uh, so you'll get links to preview uh, your deploy previews, essentially, of both the app storybook and that app profile for us to check through. And with the, de- the deploy previews, that essentially kind of becomes your staging environment, does it? Exactly. We don't really run like a traditional staging environment um, because we really trust that our deploy previews are essentially what is going to go live when we hit that merge button uh, and kick off the official build of our our main uh, main branch and our main app. So. Um, I love that we sort of can rely on deploy previews as the staging environment. We really trust that it's going to match production. We're building it with all of the, you know, production variables, everything that, you know, environment variables, all of that stuff gets built in the deploy preview. So it's pretty much um, like a no worry situation. As long as your deploy preview is working, you know that uh, the app is going to work as well. And I guess uh, as as an organization, if your deploy preview isn't matching what gets put live, then that's a, a, a service issue <laughs> that, yeah. that Netlify wants to resolve. So it yeah. actually uh, it works out quite quite nicely from that point of view. Um, so you've reviewed a deploy preview. Everything looks great. Uh, the PR gets merged. What happens then? So because Netlify runs all of our continuous deployment, essentially we have it all hooked up so that uh, any merge uh, into our main branch 
will automatically kick off a, an official production deploy of the app. So typically, uh, if you're the developer who has merged your own PR, you'll pop into the actual, you have to make sure, double check your tabs, because if you have a deploy preview of the app open and the app, you got to make sure uh, you usually want to follow along in the real app. So you got to check your tab. Uh, but yeah, in the app, you usually go in, you can watch the build logs for that um, merge that you just kicked off. So it's all automatic. Um, and then as soon as those build logs complete and the site is live, all you have to do is refresh your browser window and you'll see whatever you had just deployed uh, should be updated in the app. And let's say you catch a problem once it's gone live. What do you do then? It's a very good question. And maybe one of my favorite things about using Netlify, even before I worked at Netlify, this was uh, like a little bit of magic to me um, because Netlify has sort of a, a baked in uh, what we call rollbacks. So um Essentially, every deploy on Netlify, because we're using this Jamstack architecture, um, every deploy is atomic. So what that means is you have this full history of every sort of deploy you've ever made on a site, um, and you can instantly roll back to any one of those. So if we accidentally deploy a bug or something is broken, um, the first thing that we usually do is we actually stop that continuous integration. So we'll go in, and it's just one button in the Netlify UI that you say stop auto-publishing. And what that will do is it stops sort of that connection with GitHub. So if a if my teammate is suddenly also merging their PR, we're not going to reintroduce the bug. Nothing, nothing like that is going to happen. Um, so we stop all those auto deployments. And then all I have to do is go back in my deploys list and find the last working deploy, hit one more button that says publish this one, and it goes live. Um, so what that does is it takes that pressure off to be able to, to really go back, look at the code, figure out what actually happened. Sometimes that means doing a git revert on your main branch and, you know, getting the main branch back uh, where it needed to be. And sometimes, you know, it's a hot fix or you go off on a branch and you get it fixed, uh, you know, and you don't really even need to worry about um, reverting and git. And then, you know, when you're ready to, to go back, you make sure everything's working on your deploy preview of the app and you can just uh, reset all that stuff back up. So as soon as you start those auto deployments, uh, you're basically back in business. So I've spotted a problem here. Uh-oh. You're, you're using Netlify to deploy changes to the Netlify app. What if the bug that you've deployed stops you rolling back? What do you do then? I have nightmares. That's, that's, no, 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 no. Uh, it's actually, we have a couple of ways we can handle that. So if we take down the app and we can't use the UI to, to go through this process, um, our deploy previews actually run against our production API. So what that means is even if the app isn't working, we still have those atomic deploys. So if you have a link from GitHub, perhaps from an old or recent PR, and you have that deploy preview URL, you could actually access a deploy preview of the app and make whatever change you need, uh, go back and, and uh, publish an older deploy from the deploy preview, and it's still hitting our production API, so that will still affect the app, and then that will bring the app back up. So that's uh, a it's like sort of exploding uh, brain emoji <laughs> there, uh, <laughs> but it's, it's one way to do it. Um, we could also publish an older deploy from some of our backend systems. We could uh, get our, our backend engineers to, to publish that for us. Or you can always use Git to revert um, and, and try and push that up. But it's a little bit scary because you can't watch what you're doing. <laughs> I guess you, uh, you just need a, a, a very clear mind <laughs> to, <laughs> to manage that situation. Yeah. But it's totally recoverable from it. Sounds like it. Yeah. Well, and, you know, once you've, once you've, published your working deploy, all the pressure's off. That's really the nicest part. And I found this working in agencies as well. Uh, being able to roll back was really a lifesaver. To It also makes you less worried about publishing new changes. If you break something, you know, it, it takes 
a second to, to roll it back, um, which is, uh, fits very nicely with the sort of move quickly and, and get things out model. Definitely. Um, and I think typically the, the, this sort of whole workflow works best when you're dealing with really small changes. Um, I mean, ideally you want to create a branch, implement a small change, um, raise a PR, and then get that merged back as, as quickly as possible which obviously works fine for tweaks and bug fixes and little things, but it doesn't work so well for major feature work when that feature might take weeks or maybe even months from it starting to it being ready to deploy. How do you manage that sort of process? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. So um, we've recently started using feature flags a little bit more. Before I go uh, talk a little bit more about how we do that, I'll talk about what we used to do. So before we were using feature flags, uh, I think everyone's sort of familiar with the idea of the long-running feature branch. We all sort of hate them, right? Um, but we would work on our smaller PRs. We would merge each of those individually after code review into this longer-running feature branch. Um, so you would just basically have, you know, all of your new feature in one place. Uh, you have one deploy preview that you can test that new feature with. Um, sometimes this model sort of required coordinated deployments across other teams. So when we were ready to say, okay, this feature branch, we're ready to merge it and get it live. Occasionally, that meant, okay, you got to make sure backends already deployed their change. So whatever API, you know, um, work that we're doing in our feature is ready to go. If there are docs on our docs site that need to go live at the same time as the feature, you sort of have to coordinate and hit the buttons at the same time. Um, this model is, was, it worked for us. Um, but you're right that it, it, it wasn't maybe the smoothest. Um, it's actually sort of funny. Our, our co-founder and CEO at Netlify, Matt Billman, actually launched our analytics feature um, using this process on stage at Jamstack London last year. Uh, so he used our lock deploys feature to basically um, take the deploy preview of the new feature of analytics and publish it live on stage. So that was pretty cool. Um, but like you said, it's you have a little less confidence. Everything is still sort of hidden in this pull request. Um, it becomes a bit unwieldy. Someone has to approve that final pull request that usually is quite large. That's a little overwhelming. Um, so nowadays we're mostly using feature flags. Uh, we use a service called Launch Darkly, um, which lets us basically wrap our new feature UI with these flags um, so that we can keep continuously merging code, even if the UI isn't something we want customers to see. So you just make sure in the production environment that your feature flag is off. Uh, we can deploy the code, merge it, uh, and no one, you know, assuming that you're a, a general user, you're not going to that new UI. So a feature flag is basically just like a switch in the code that says, you know, if the if this feature is enabled, use this new code, otherwise use this old code. Um, exactly. Does does that mean that uh, you get sort of messy a messy code base with all these forks in place? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that's anyone who uses feature flags probably is used to this sort of battle of, of uh, when do you clean up the feature flags? How long do you leave them there? Uh, we've sort of landed on uh, about two weeks after a major feature get, gets released is we have reminders. Luckily, LaunchDarkly actually recently set up um, a feature that will notify Slack. So you can like hook it up with Slack and it'll just tell you, hey, your feature flag has been, you know, you've, you've been live in production for two weeks. It's about time to go uh, make sure you clean up your, your flag in the code. So we do try and, and clean it up pretty quickly, but it is sort of in that time in between, it is nice to know the flag is still there. Even if you've released the feature, it means that, again, with one click, you can go in and toggle that flag back off if there is a bug, if there is something that pops up. Um, so we like to leave them in for a little bit just while the feature is really baking, while people are getting used to it to make sure there aren't any major major issues. 
Um, but then we do try and go back into the code and it is a bit of cleanup. So it's not, you know, an ideal process, but usually removing the flag doesn't take very long. You're just deleting a couple lines of code. So, I mean, I guess the the simplest approach to implementing a, a feature flag could just be a like a config variable in in your in your app that says this feature's on or off. But then you you need some way to make sure that it's on for the right people and off for the uh, for the right people. Um, and I guess that's where a service like Launch Dark, Darkly comes in because it takes that. It, I mean, it takes basically what is switching on and off a variable to an extreme level, doesn't it? Yes, yes, that's that's exactly it. So. Um, there are ways we could have, even without Launch Darkly, basically set up a config variable ourselves that we sort of manage on our end. Um, one of the things I love about Launch Darkly is that uh, there are different environments. So what we can do is essentially turn on a feature flag for our deploy previews. So anyone who's viewing internally at Netlify a deploy preview of the app can have access to the new feature, can test it out. Uh, but then again, as soon as it goes live in production, that flag is off. So there's very little... Uh, again, you sort of have to check your tab and make sure you're, you're aware of sort of what uh, segment you're in because you don't want to surprise yourself and think you've launched something that you didn't. You have to be a little bit careful there. Uh, but in general, it works It works quite well. And LaunchDarkly lets you also do these selective rollouts. So you can, you know, roll out a feature uh, to some percentage of your code base or to a specific user segment, uh, people with a specific type of plan or a specific type of user um, so it allows you a, lo- a lot more control over who you're sort of releasing to. Yeah, that that can be really powerful, I, I guess, particularly with new features or, or features that you might be expecting to to resolve a, a, an issue. You know, maybe you're enhancing a feature to make it more understandable. You can maybe try it with 10% of the users and, and see if they're experiencing the same problems. And Exactly. It's a great way to get feedback as well, yeah. I guess using launch darkly in this way rather than rolling your own solution is kind of another aspect of the the Jamstack approach, isn't it? Is just using an API that gives you this functionality without having to worry about how you implement that yourselves and and how to develop that and uh, how to maintain it and keep that. So, you know, it's, you can just outsource it. Say, right, we're going to use this API and everything else is taken care of. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So this this approach enables you to. Um, be committing small bits of new features uh, to uh, to production essentially, but they're just sort of hidden behind behind the flag. And then when everything is is ready to go, you can just flip the flag and you can quickly switch it back again if something goes wrong. Yep, exactly. It makes our uh, launches a little bit less exciting. It used to be, you know, you're pressing these big buttons and there's all this code that's getting merged and you're watching your build logs and it's this moment of anticipation. And now it's, you know, you hop on a Zoom call, you click one button. <laughs> And it's live. Yeah, I think the the last feature launch I worked on in LFI, we used this approach and it had been weeks of work for a whole team of people. And we got on a Zoom call to coordinate the release and everyone confirmed that their parts were ready. And then I flipped the feature flag and turned it on for all users and that was it. Done. And it was over in a few minutes and it was really anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of and- sad. There was no, there was no sweaty palms. There was nothing, which of course is exactly what you want, isn't it? That's how you know you've got a robust process. If t- turning something on for everybody is just not a big deal, exactly. And if you got to roll it back again, it's just that simple. It's that one click. It relieves some of that pressure, anxiety. So presumably, I mean, not all changes are going to be just front end changes. Sometimes there are going to be back-end changes, uh, and presumably they have their own feature flags as well in, in most back-end systems. So uh, you mentioned docs as well. Is 
is there a way to coordinate all of this together? Is it just, does everybody just flip their flags at the same time or how does that work? Yeah, so uh, this is an area that we're sort of actively working on across the teams right now at Nellify is working working towards a solution that would allow us to perhaps tie everything to one single flag and launch darkly that all of our systems are using, all of our code bases are using. So in an ideal world, right, we would be able to flip a flag and say, okay, this is toggling on the new API endpoint that is also being consumed on the front end with this new UI that is wrapped in a feature flag, as well as this portion of the doc site that has new information about this new feature. And you flip that one flag and it it impacts, you know, all of those uh, repositories. We're not quite there yet. Uh, we're working through that, um, but I, I'm excited to see sort of uh, if we're able to get all of that uh, coordinated and working. Netlify as a service is very much sort of tailored to, to building sites in this way. Um, does the work that you and your team are doing using the product actually influence the product development at all? I'd say that it definitely does. Uh, you know, everyone always says you are not your user, which I think is true most of the time, except sometimes when you are your user, uh, which is funny at Netlify because, you know, I think most of the people on the front end team uh, in particular are people who had used Netlify before as a product. Um, And certainly because we're using Netlify to deploy Netlify, we run into the same challenges that I think some of our users do. Um, So in some ways, you know, if we run into a problem, we'll try and bring it up to the rest of the company. We'll, We'll mention it in an engineering call or we'll pull in our CTO and say, hey, like, this is something that we're struggling with. Is there something we could build into the product that would make this easier for us and for all of our users who are deploying similar things that we are? Um, so it's it's sort of a unique position to be in, but it's it's fun to see how the, the product roadmap gets, gets developed. I guess there's um, probably few people out there using Netlify quite as intensively as Netlify does itself. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's about right. I, I stare at Netlify both when I'm building it and when I'm deploying it. So I'm <laughs> pretty, pretty familiar with it. And then at the weekend, you work on a side project. <laughs> that yeah, that's actually very true. Back in, yes. back in Netlify again. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, uh, do, you, do you have any examples of like how the, um, the product direction has been influenced at all by the work that the team's done? Yeah, so um, we pretty recently uh, launched a new sort of uh, landing dashboard for the app that we're calling the team overview. Uh, so it used to be when you logged into Netlify, you'd land on uh, the sites page, which would just basically be a long list of your sites. And we wanted to give people a little bit more of a mission control area where they can sort of see a lot of important information at a glance, get access to things that are, are going to be most useful to them. And so that was a new feature that we built. Um, in the initial iteration, you know, we're trying to get it out quickly. We have a little card on that UI that links to your latest builds. So what you know, it shows you any build across your whole team um, should show up in that uh, in that card. And at first, we actually hadn't linked those up to the build, uh, the the deploy log itself. So it was just a list where you could check it out. You could click into the builds page to get a sort of similar view. Um, but I was actually working on something over the weekend, a personal site, and I had this team overview turned on, and I was annoyed because I realized. I, you know, I logged into Netlify and I wanted to to go check out this uh, this build that was happening of my uh, my project, and I couldn't just click on it and get right to it. I had to click into the builds page and then click again. So um, the next day at work, I went in and and added that change and linked up those those builds because it was uh, bothering me. So uh, that was one example of sort of just uh, realizing by using the product that there was a a very small opportunity to improve it, and uh, and we took that. Um, but we do have some other examples too, um, probably a little bit 
more impactful. Uh, one is that um, we sort of added this form detection feature. So uh, a little bit of background, if you're not familiar, Netlify Forms is a feature in Netlify that lets you build um, like a front end form. And Netlify sort of does all the back end work of managing submissions. It's sort of like your database for your form that you've built on your front end. Uh, it means you don't have to write any server side code or like a whole lot of extra JavaScript to, to manage form submissions. Um, so if you have really any site that you deployed in Netlify, um, as your, your build is happening, our build bots are parsing your site's HTML at deploy time to basically detect if you've got a Netlify form um, that Netlify needs to pay attention to and manage, right? Um, and this form detection, the, the build bots looking for that is enabled by default. But what that means is that, as you can imagine, that eats up a little bit of your build time because the, the bots have to go and look for this extra, uh, extra step. So um, the Netlify app itself, actually, we're not using. We don't have any Netlify forms on the app right now. So this is a step that basically is adding a little bit to our build time, but doesn't necessarily need to happen. So Netlify actually built a, a new feature that allows any user to disable that form detection. So what that means is you can turn that setting off in your site settings. The build bots realize that there's nothing they need to look for. So they you save that little bit of extra uh, extra processing time in the builds. I guess that's great in terms of producti productivity because things just complete a little bit quicker. Exactly. But also uh, as a metered service, it enables you to get more out of the, the sort of allowances that you've got. Yeah, exactly. And so this was like something that we also heard from some of our, our users and customers. And it was something we sort of noticed as well. It was, well, we don't need this extra step in our own product. So is there a way, something we could give to all of our users to make everyone's life a little, a little easier, make everyone's builds a little faster if they're not using this feature? Is there a danger? I mean, you say that uh, you're not your user, um, but with Netlify, you often are your user. Is there a danger that the the in, with the intensity that you use the product that you might um, overlook the sort of users who are only using it very lightly and everything might get too complex and too advanced and it just become very difficult to get started with? That's that's a great question. You know, we also have really built out our user research function at Netlify and our data science function. And I think, you know, overall, we trust them a lot more than my anecdotal experience, you know, using and deploying the app. But um, I think all of that data sort of comes together to allow us to get a better picture of who's using Netlify, what type of user are we speaking to? Um, you know, there are people with different types of needs. We've got folks on our starter teams who are, you know, managing blogs and personal sites. And we've got Huge enterprises as well um, who are who are launching big marketing campaigns and big web apps, um, not so dissimilar from Netlify itself. So um, it's exciting to sort of see the user base grow and to and to think about all these use cases and to figure out how we can cater to all of those users, right? Um, and certainly uh, using more of our research functionality to to lean on understanding who those users are, and not not just uh, our internal experience. Uh, tell me, Leslie, about the um, the screenshot service that uh, Netlify has in place, because that's uh, I found that really interesting. Yeah, so um, we in the UI we have uh, when you deploy a site on Netlify in the UI we have like a little screenshot that shows you typically what uh, like what the homepage of the site you've built looks like. Um, it's actually funny uh, we brought this up because I was listening to Chris Coyer uh, his episode on Serverless not so long ago, and he was talking about how they do screenshots in CodePen as well, which is actually not so dissimilar to how Netlify does it. But um, basically, we uh, run Puppeteer to capture that screenshot of the user's site. 
Um, and the way that it's all run is that it's set up with a Nellify function. So this is, again, an, an example of us dogfooding um, our own product. So essentially, we use this endpoint that is a Nellify function inside our own app to return the URL of that um, image of the screenshots that then we can serve that up in the app. So Netlify functions are, are Netlify's implementation of a, of a serverless function, aren't they? Where you basically just drop a JavaScript file into a designated folder as part of your uh, part of your source, um, and then that becomes available to be executed as a cloud function. Yes, exactly. Super smart, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's brilliant. Um, it, this is one of those areas where it really pushes me as a front end en- engineer to really be more of this JavaScript or serverless engineer and think a little bit more about how. Um, you're basically writing like an internal API endpoint for yourself uh, when you create one of these serverless functions. So um, it's it's exciting because uh, there's so much you can do, but that can make it a little intimidating also because there's so much you can do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, just, I, I sort of find it funny how it's like that's a, seemingly a core uh, piece of functionality for, for Netlify, you know, displaying images alongside your site of what it looks like. Yeah, it's just implemented with another Netlify feature. Um, and, you know, we wonder how far you go before it all disappears in on itself <laughs> yeah. in a big cloud of smoke. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds, this sounds like a, a, a really nice way to be working in a very modern way to be working, but it can't be without its challenges, can it? Absolutely not. I think I've spoken a little bit about what it means sort of as a front end engineer, pushing into sort of some new areas just for me to be thinking about in terms of serverless and, and how can we leverage this in the product? Um, I think. For me, mastering that sort of back of the front end side has been a, an exciting challenge, uh, but but certainly there's a lot to learn there. Um, an example of that uh, in our app right now is that we we use Cypress for end-to-end testing of some of the critical flows in our app. And right now we sort of have that set up so that the Cypress end-to-end tests are running on our deploy previews in pull requests uh, using a GitHub action. So we use the GitHub action to run those Cypress tests against the deploy previews of the app, um, which is really cool. But there's probably a better way to do this than actually using a GitHub action. I actually think that we could use a Netlify serverless function because those can be triggered on certain events like a deploy succeeded event. So there's an opportunity there for us um, to actually leverage, again, Netlify a little bit more instead of relying on, on some of these other tools that maybe we're more familiar with or more comfortable using. Um, so in terms of challenges, I think it's, opening our minds to, to what, uh, what this sort of new model of development allows us to do and trying to leverage it. Yes, it's, um, uh, there, there's so many different ways on there to, with the, the tooling that's available to be able to attack a particular problem. You know, there's, uh, uh, at Smashing, we probably shouldn't say there's more than one way to skin a cat. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, what, what's interesting about the workflow as well is that it's really intensively Git-based, which I think suits, you know, that's really developer-friendly, developer isn't it? As a, as a front-end engineer, something that's Git-based kind of, um, you know, just, just feels like home. So is, the, is that all great, or <laughs> are there any problems that come in with that? I think uh, as a developer, you know, Git is wonderful. I think in general it, it solves big, big problems, and I'm very happy to have it. But uh, because we rely on it so heavily, and as, as our internal team has grown as well, um, you know, you end up having the same problems that Git has when you're talking about sort of Netlify in this workflow, right? So if you end up with a bug on your main branch, 
yes, it's really easy to roll back the the app itself. We we talked through what that looks like and then go in the code and fix it. Um, but what if someone else on your team is working from a broken version of that main branch? Everyone's going to have to rebase. Everyone's going to have to communicate or at least be aware of uh, what happened. Uh, and so it's not so much a Jamstack problem or a Netlify problem, but more of just the age old, how do you coordinate on a team of human beings? Uh, and how do you use the technology uh, to do that properly? And uh, of course, as you add more tools and uh, infrastructure in around what you're doing, then you've got the problem of everything taking a long time to run. I mean, you mentioned Cypress as one thing. I know Cypress is a real headache with the amount, <laughs> the amount of time those end-to-end tests can take to run. Is there, are there challenges around that growing build time? Yeah, I think that's one of the other things that, you know, Jamstack, um, it, you're introducing this build time, which uh, for developers is is not great. I always try and think about it as what I sort of eat up in that build time, my users are saving in, in the performance of, of what they're getting. So I, I always try to keep that in mind when I'm frustrated about uh, how long something is taking to build. But certainly I think that's an, an area of opportunity and, and a challenge is figuring out um how to how to keep those build times fast, how to make sure that, you know, we can deploy as quickly as possible. Some of it is this sort of tension between wanting to run all your tests, wanting to make sure that, you know, you don't deploy a build if a test fails, but at the same time, then you've got to run all those tests. So it's this constant sort of back and forth between wanting to keep the build times fast while also making sure that you feel like you're doing your due diligence, um, you know, before you actually deploy something. And we're playing around with some some ideas here as well about uh, potentially moving our, our Cypress tests to be running against production and having some alerting set up that would let us know after the fact if, if something had failed, uh, which is sort of an interesting model too. So yeah, stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I certainly know that, um, yes, the, the dangers of, of growing build times just from a, a developer point of view, from productivity uh, point of view, that... You know, if something takes too long to run, you context switch, you start working on something else, and then it just, you lose all the momentum. And maybe you forget to go back and find out whether the build succeeded because you're then so far into the next task. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, I guess this this isn't the ultimate workflow as it stands at the moment. There must be further we can take it. Uh, you know, what sort of opportunities might lie ahead for this way of working? Yeah. So I think um, for me and Netlify in particular is sort of this thought of collaboration for larger teams. I mean, I know a lot of developers are sort of have used Netlify for side projects and other things that they're working on on their own. But um, thinking about how it can be leveraged on larger teams like mine, um, as we get larger and, and we're growing, more of us are in the app, more of us are using Netlify to deploy our uh, our own services. And so, um, you know, everything from sort of even more robust audit logs so that you can go and see who changed the site setting or who was the last person to deploy something. Um, I think having the ability to sort of organize your sites within your Netlify dashboard, dashboard, um, even knowing like assigning someone to a build is sort of an interesting idea to me. Like, could that be helpful if I knew that, you know, my, my uh, teammate had worked on this build, but then I realized they had to roll it back and maybe I'm just aware of who, who's managing that process could be a really useful thing within, uh, within Netlify itself. Um, and one thing that uh, I've seen sort of uh, thrown around a little bit is perhaps the ability to link to a specific log line in a, a build log. So for debugging, if you you know have your build log of your deploy preview and there's a uh, an error that got thrown, uh, either from Netlify or from your own code, it'd be nice to be able to link directly to that log line. Um, so that's sort of a fun, uh, small improvement that I've, I've 
been thinking about a bit. Um, and that's not even to say we have some new features at Netlify as well that are pretty exciting um, edge handlers and background functions. I'm still trying to wrap my head around what they all do and exactly <laughs> how they work, but um, I know that edge handlers are going to give us uh, the opportunity to do uh, some things with localized content, which could be have some interesting implications for uh, features we could build in the Netlify app as well. Yeah, it's really exciting. I think there are all sorts of people um, within the Jamstack community who are uh, sort of pushing this this sort of whole thing forward. But I think, you know, Netlify as a service is, is one that is uh, really, you know, behind it and doing exciting things. And as I said, I didn't want uh, to, this to be a big ad for Netlify, but I think you and I both really love the service, so it is exciting to talk about, isn't it? If... Um, if listeners want to, uh, you know, sort of get more engaged with learning how to build Jamstack sites or, or you know, sort of want to get more into this uh, this ecosystem, is there a good place to go to learn this stuff? Uh, it's uh, it's sort of, I feel like it's exploding right now. I would certainly point you to the Netlify blog. Um, we try and post some, uh, some tips and tricks there and, and announce new features as well. Um, I would give a, a shout out too to uh, learn with Jason. My uh, my coworker Jason Langsdorf does sort of a live stream show, and he does cover he covers a range of topics, but does some uh, some Jamstack specific ones as well. And it's sort of a fun like hour of live coding uh, and and checking that out. Um, Twitter I think is is huge too, so check out Jamstack hashtag. Good advice. So we've been learning all about how Netlify builds Netlify on Netlify. Uh, what have you been learning about, Leslie? Ooh, that's uh, always a, a big question. I'd say um, I mentioned Cypress before. You know, we've been working through some of our processes around exactly how we want to run our end-to-end -end tests. Um, and so I would say that in general, I've been thinking a lot about uh, that workflow. So less about the technology itself, but more about what workflows exist for end-to-end um, -end testing on the front end uh, and what makes sense sort of in this Jamstack model. So that's been a fun uh, sort of side tangent. And then, um, you know, in, on the CSS side of things, we talked a bit about CSS architecture and uh, I'm starting to get my hands dirty with Tailwind, which has been uh, fun and exciting and lots to learn and lots of class names to memorize. And uh, yeah. It's exciting stuff. If you, dear listener, would like to hear more from Leslie, you can find her on Twitter where she's at Leslie C Dubs and her personal site is leslie.dev. Thanks for joining us today, Leslie. Did you have any parting words? Have a great day. <laughs> this is Smashing. And that was our podcast. Thank you very much for listening. And if you liked it, please share it with your friends. Find us on the web at smashingmagazine.com, on Twitter at Smashing Mag, Smashing Magazine on Facebook, or in the supermarket by the cat food. Music.